Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Motherhood's Limited Edition podcast series on all things influencer marketing. We are talking about everything that you can think of under the sun related to this industry, and it's been a lot of fun. So we're excited that you're here. I'm Cooper Monroe, and I'm CEO of the Motherhood, and I'm joined today by Deanna Tomaselli, our VP of Client Services. Hi. Hi, I'm Deanna Tomaselli. I am joined today with Cooper Monroe, um, and we are so excited to welcome our guest today on the Motherhood Podcast. So Phoebe Bain, um, we've been interviewed by Phoebe a couple of times, and we've just connected, I think, over social media at first. Um, And, you know, Phoebe has a really great history of journalism, specifically in influencer marketing. So um, she was part of Business Insider and Social Media Today. Um, and then uh, most recently, she was at uh, Morning Brew and kind of spearheaded and founded their uh, Marketing Brew uh, vertical. So she has a lot of great experience. Um, today, she's a senior reporter at Ad Age, and she covers everything from influencer marketing to direct-to-consumer brands and a, a little bit of everything in between. So we're very excited to welcome Phoebe today. Um, Phoebe, welcome to the podcast. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So um, before we get into our questions and everything, I touched on a little bit about your background, but tell us a little bit about how you got into to journalism and kind of broke into your career. Yeah. Good question. So I think when I was in college, um, I have always been a writer. That's always been you know my strong suit um, and what I've liked doing the most, at least academically. Um, it was always what I was most interested in. So I always knew that I would do something sort of more in the humanities vein, Um, And by college, I was debating between going to law school and becoming a journalist because I was writing for a digital student publication at the time. It's called College Magazine, Um, you know, a fun online companion to a lot of print student newspapers across the country. Um, But yeah, I was debating between the two and was having a ton of fun, you know, at this student newspaper situation and kind of did the math on, you know, how much more would I really be making as the kind of lawyer that I wanted to be. And I realized it would take me 20 years to see the return on my investment. And so I doubled down on the journalism thing, but everyone I talked to was like, well, you know, you're not, you're never going to get paid to be a journalist at first. You have to write for years and years and years for free um, before anyone will pay you. So I kind of just figured, why don't I just spend all of college interning? Um, Cause my, I went to William and Mary for my undergrad and they had a program where you could get um, course credit for internships. And so I did a bunch of different internships. Um, Social media today was one of my first ones. Um, I interned for people's lifestyle blogs, um, did all sorts of things. And essentially what happened was by my senior year, um, I was interning for a lifestyle blog in California and social media today. And I knew that I was going to have to pick one to kind of focus my efforts on for my last semester of college. And social media today was the one that paid me and the lifestyle blog didn't. So I picked that one and it kind of started this domino effect of my whole career. Um, right. Because I still write about marketing and advertising news. Um, so yeah, that was, that was the end of school. I, I mean, my grades were pretty awful. Like, you know, I was getting by, but I was like, by no means on Dean's list. Um, just because all I was doing was writing, um, and working at these journalism internships. And then I graduated, um, and got an offer from Business Insider to do a fellowship program with them. Um, and so I did. And, you know, the rest is kind of history. But yeah, that was originally how I got into it. Amazing. And, you know, it's not all about grades. Who needs grades anyway? I think most journalists <laughs> I talk to either if they didn't go to journalism school because I didn't, um, 
if they didn't go to journalism school, they're like, yeah, clips over grades all the way. Cause it's, you know, what matters? Like nobody's ever asking right. your GPA for these things. Right. Um, so yeah, it was weird. And, you know, I'd always been straight A student growing up to kind of deprioritize that, but it was what ended up working. You had your priority straight. That's for sure. <laughs> um, so tell us about kind of how you got into your niche of influencer. Was it something that you had personal interest in? Did the opportunity present itself? Kind of how, how did that come about? Yeah, basically, you know, I'd started reporting and writing about social media news. And then when I got to Marketing Brew, um, so a little bit of backstory on that. When I started at Morning Brew, it was 30 people. And they, you know, were thinking about starting this series of industry newsletters. They already had Emerging Tech Brew and Retail Brew that had done pretty well for them. Um, and they hired me to be their marketing person. So, you know, I was doing all the back end research for the marketing newsletter, um, competitive analysis, and then I was the founding writer. So, you know, the sole person that was writing it for um, many, many, many months um, until we were acquired by Business Insider, ironically. Um, but yeah, so I was the sole person writing it, which meant that I had to touch kind of every side of the marketing industry rather than just writing about social media marketing as I had previously. Um, but then after Business Insider acquired us, um, we were able to hire many, many more reporters and everyone sort of developed their own beats. And as we were in the process of that, I think my editor just noticed that I liked covering the influencer thing. I was familiar with covering social media news. Um, and I think a lot of times, you know, you just end up doing what you're familiar with in this industry. Um, and that ends up being what you're good at, right? Cause you have more expertise in that area. Um, so yeah, she came to me, I guess about two years in and asked if I wanted to, you know, exclusively cover influencer and make that bang beat. And I said, absolutely. Um, but I mean, like I kind of fit the profile for somebody that's covering influencer, right? I'm young. I'm a woman. Um, so. I'm sure that was part of it. Um, and I don't know, it's interesting though, because like, if you just look at the influencer world, I don't, I don't think I could ever be an influencer. I don't fit that profile, but within a newsroom, I do think I fit the profile of who's going to report on this. Right. Um, so yeah, that's how that got started. That's great. So today you're at Ad Age, yes. which is amazing. And you've been there for several months now. Kind of take us through what are some trends that you're seeing right now? We'll go into it in a little bit about some specifics, but what are some just kind of emerging trends when it comes to creator campaigns that you're seeing right now? Yeah. So the biggest thing that I'm seeing, and I did a, a piece on this in, um, a couple of weeks ago, I think, and I would have to remind myself of what the piece was called, but the pricing thing is sort of going on a backswing, right? So when I first started really doubling down and focusing on influencer reporting exclusively, it was the beginning of this pay transparency movement. Um, and there were companies like Clara and FYPM that, you know, were telling all of these creators, hey, you know, you need to, you deserve to make more. You deserve to charge the amount that you're worth, right? Do your worth, charge more money, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think a lot of creators heard that. And also we're seeing a lot of viral content on social media, some from those companies, but some from, you know, other independent creators. Um, basically just saying you can charge more for this, right? What we're doing is really valuable for a lot of brands. And so people did start charging more. Rates went up, um, you know, 20, end of 2021, beginning of 2022, um, people started to say, yeah, like influencer rates, you know, are, are rising. But I've noticed that with a lot of smaller direct-to-consumer companies, um, they are cutting influencer marketing budget. And I don't think it has nothing to do with like these two things aren't completely separate, right? The fact that creators have 
increase their rates um, and the fact that some creator budgets are being cut within, you know, marketing organizations or marketing arms of organizations. Um, I don't think it's necessarily a cause and effect kind of thing. Um, but I do think that, you know, as budgets are being cut more generally in an economic downturn, um, an influencer is one of the things to go. If you're seeing your results like, hey, this has gotten more expensive. That's just sort of like, you know, another drop in the bucket of maybe we should cut our cut our budget here. So I'm curious to see how creators react. I think another reason that's happening is because it's become so like a very, very saturated industry over the past couple of years. Um with the great resignation and people seeing that, you know, you can work on your own and be an influencer and make just as much money as you were making from a corporate job that's maybe making you go back to the office earlier than you're comfortable with with the pandemic or a million other reasons. Um, I think that's part of it, too. But, yeah, I'm curious as to kind of what the next step of that is. Also, I definitely want to make it clear that it's not all companies that are cutting influencer budgets. I think that a lot of larger organizations are um, just now starting to follow the trend of these smaller organizations that are cut cutting budgets and actually doubling down on influencer more so. But um, yeah, these kind of scrappy or D2C companies, I'm seeing some budget cuts. Yeah, that's really interesting. So uh, your career has pretty much followed the trajectory of the influencer industry growing. So was it just, I'd love to hear how it was starting out when you were first w with um, covering social media early in your career. Yeah. I mean, like there's a quote that always sticks out to me from one of my very early, early, early sources. Um, this guy had done, I think he set up the original social media accounts for McDonald's and also did social media for like Discover and all these different places in the early 2000s, um, you know, a long, a long time ago at this point, right? We're in 2023. And he said to me when I first started covering social media, which I guess was like 2017, 2018-ish, he was like, there will never be a chief social media officer. This is just, you know, one tool that marketers need to have or CMOs need to have in, you know, their toolbox. Um, they need to have a wide variety of, of skills to be a CMO. And so the fact that we at that point in time, we weren't even thinking about social media as like a C-suite level skill, really. Um, but or like barely even a director level skill at that point. Right. Um, and now we're thinking about how huge the influencer marketing industry is like that all hinges on social media. So it's just, it's grown a ton. Obviously, you know, it, you guys would know better than me. Influencers were around long, long, long before I started reporting on the space, but um, it's, it's taken a little bit more seriously, I think like among mid-level people, because right. The people that were bringing influencer strategy into companies as interns are now mid-level um, employees. So it's grown a ton. I think it's great. Um, I think, honestly, in a big picture way, I think it's really good for the gender dynamics almost in marketing organizations, um, just because influencer marketing is, you know, it's feminized labor, right? It's um, the majority of people that are great at this are, are women. Um, and so I think having to take feminized labor seriously and CMOs kind of beginning to see that. Um, and even social media is like, you know, less so, but it's still somewhat of a feminine thing in comparison to other parts of the marketing industry or other channels. And it's, it's weird to gender them, but it's just like, who's been hired for these things over the years? You know, I, I see the genders of the people that I'm talking to. Um, yeah, it's, it's good that it's grown this much. And I think it's forced, um, you know, top marketing officials to take women a little bit more seriously as a whole. 
especially because all this begins to happen right around 2016, which is like the year of the woman or 2017 was, right? So <laughs> every year is the year of the woman. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and when this, when we, we started doing this in 15 years ago, uh, it was w invented by women, as yeah. you know. I mean, there were the women, mostly women with children, creating these blogs. They were, if they were, they were not paid. Uh, they were creating this content, and if they were paid, it was like a mug and a coupon. And and the the person that was in charge of social media was like the cousin's friend who knew Facebook. Totally, and, you know. So I mean, it was not taken seriously. It was dipping the toe in the water. It was throwing stuff up against the wall, seeing what 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 worked. Uh, but as it's become, you know, understood to be as powerful as it is and as successful and uh, there's you know, obviously much more credibility around it, but it all hinges on the credibility of the content. So, it, I mean, if it's people, you know, you know this, people can see through this content so easily. Um, and we were, I was interested to hear a little bit more about what you've covered there in terms of like the farmer's dog, for example. So how do you make sure that, um, the content is credible and authentic and real to the audiences. You know, it's tough for the, with a product like farmer's dog. What if the dog doesn't like the product, you know? So, so what are you, um, what, what did you find? What are you finding just generally on that front about credit, credibility, authenticity, but um, even specific examples of articles that you've written in recently. Yeah. So what I'll say about the farmer's dog, I mean, the Super Bowl was like very much the year of the dog, which I love because I adopted a dog for the first time in my adult life six months ago. So, um, but I mean, watching the Super Bowl and seeing those commercials and the farmer's dog being, you know, kind of one of the standout commercials there, I think, um, kind of elucidates a rule that social media marketing teams have had for a long time that I really have always thought applies to other channels and sort of proved it true is that like, when marketers have, you know, a smaller amount of red tape to go through, the content is better, right? So The Farmer's Dog is a startup. I actually just finished a book um, or reading a book, not writing one, not yet, um, by the third employee at The Farmer's Dog who doesn't work there anymore. But like, you know, she was not the third employee there very long ago. Like that was a startup. It still is a startup. Um, it, it just grew very quickly and they were able to have a Super Bowl ad. But I imagine the red tape that a startup has to go through for um, Super Bowl creative is far less than, you know, M&M's has to go through or Paramount has to go, to go through or anything like that. And I think it showed with how authentic and, and great that creative was, right? But um, so that's that. But from a, um, you know, talking about authenticity in the influencer marketing space perspective, um, yeah, that's an issue right now that that was sort of like the bigger underlying theme in the story that I wrote about, um, you know, some direct consumer companies cutting influencer marketing budgets is that like what every single one of them said to me, they all had a bunch of different reasons, right? Cutting budgets generally, the things they listed before. Um, but the one that every single one of them said was like, consumers now know, at least, you know, Gen Z consumers in particular, now know that these people are getting paid to hawk a product and they now know that it's an ad, right? Um, I think, I don't know. Like there is something to say about, well, even if you know it's an ad that doesn't change the impact that much, right? Because um, we watch TV, we see that, you know, if people, people wouldn't buy Super Bowl ads if that was the case, right? But it's interesting because influencer marketing has been 
it really grew up on this idea that it's more authentic um, than what other people or what other channels um, are able to accomplish. So I don't know. I mean, I think that like the rise of the UGC creator is a really good thing. Um, not necessarily for those creators, but for, for brands. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just like, you have to be very picky about who you're working with and whether that product is authentic to them or not. Um, do you guys know who Kelty Knight is? Speaking of podcasts, she's, um, Kelty Knight is an influencer and a, she's actually in, um, like a entertainment TV show host. Um, but she has a podcast network called, um, Lady Gang Podcasts because that's what, you know, the, the network is called and her show is called. Um, but I heard an interview with her recently where she was saying that like the ads that they do on the podcast and the ads that they do, you know, she does on her Instagram, if she does not like the product and she's genuinely like not obsessed with the product, she won't do it. And that's like the only way that I think the creator economy is really going to succeed if, is if the majority of people are Kelties, um, and are taking that approach to it. The vetting process that should go into these campaigns, you know, you can't just scroll Instagram and pick someone to to showcase your product or whatever your message is, that vetting is where it comes into play, where you can find those already established brand loyalists or people that might be new to the brand, but you know that they're going to like it. You know, it's it's doing that research and watching their stories, watching their TikTok, whatever it may be. And that way, it's not this weird trying to fit in, but rather it's part of that natural progression already that the influencer has created. So I think that's a really good point. And I think podcasts, too, are getting more scrutiny now with their ads because they're not always very clear when they're, you know, disclosing products. Yeah, podcasts are definitely still the Wild West, um, even more so than influencer is, in my opinion, just because, you know, there has been some government regulation um, around social media marketing. Um, and therefore, you know, there's more around influencer marketing too, as a result, not enough, but some um, podcasts, I don't think it's at the same place in it's timeline yet, but. And do you think who some of the, the brands that you have interviewed who are cutting influencer budgets are maybe they didn't spend enough time vetting, or maybe they just kind of do like a spray and pray technique, or have you ever interviewed somebody like that? Yeah. Um, I do think they spent enough time vetting and I think that, you know, it's really hard to cut through the noise. And I think especially if you're a direct-to-consumer brand that maybe can't hire an agency to do some of this work for you. And the person that you have working on Influencer is also working on marketing for the company as a whole, right? Um, you have to spend, you know, I don't really think that there's a system out there that can do it for you. Say who's going to be a good influencer for your brand. People are certainly trying to create them. I haven't seen anything that can do what a human can do and say, you know, is this authentic or is this not authentic, right? Um, there's no like, because by definition, a computer figuring that out for you would not be authentic. Um, but yeah, I, I do think they spent enough time with it. I don't think that they have enough manpower for it. I think the same thing about newsletters, right? Like everyone's like, I want a newsletter or we should start a newsletter. And I'm like, you need definitely a dedicated human being to run that, to make it really work as well as it could work. Um, and I think influencer marketing is the same, whether it's an agency or, you know, great people on the influencers, a talent team, like it cannot just be <laughs> the one, the one marketer at the company handling this. Um, so I think that's part of it. And I also think that what, like the reason that's part of it is because that you need a lot of time to cut through the noise and figure out whether or not these people actually like these products. Right. And frankly, like if I have a million other things to do in my marketing job day to day, I don't really have time to sit down and quiz an influencer on, you know, what he, she, or they uses, um, product wise. So I don't know. And then it's also like, 
with the culture of influencer marketing and how the culture of influencers and who the stereotype of an influencer is, I think it's even hard for those people, the stereotypical influencer, not necessarily all influencers, but it's hard for those people to figure out what they authentically like and what they don't like. They're sent so many products for free by all the time by so many different brands. They're very, you know, heavily invested in influencer culture as well. They're spending a ton of screen time on their phones. So yeah, like it's at the bottom of the argument. It's an issue of people getting to know themselves enough to know what they like, which is really hard to do in a world where we're all looking at other people on screens hawking products all day. It's so interesting too how this is so much more complicated and there's so much more going on 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 the back end of this. So the amount of of touch points, the you know you you talked about the red tape for the Super Bowl ads, but yeah, you know, I know that you're covering health and wellness specifically more and more now. Um but those are areas that are highly regulated and really require accuracy. So, you know, the, the health wellness finance, which, which we work on, there's just layers and layers and layers. And people probably don't realize how many people are involved behind the scenes uh, on the, the regulations and, and, you know, all of the things that, that go into highly regulated industries. So um, in there's just, re I know the guidelines are recently updated. Can you talk a little bit, about that, uh, where you see the kind of health and wellness and more regulation and, you know, uh, the, this, you know, obviously there needs to be accuracy on these topics, especially um, in what you're seeing there. I mean, I think it's interesting. I'm definitely not an expert there yet. Right. And that's a that's a part of my coverage area that I'm still diving into and getting to know more about um, just for me personally. But yeah, I, I do think it's interesting. I just think that like it's sort of my first thought when I read the update was that, you know, there's been a lot of things on social media that these the social media companies, TikTok, Meta, whatever, have said that they're going to regulate and then don't have the moderation tools to actually do it. So, for instance, how influencers need to specify that something is a sponsored post, right, with a hashtag or, you know, whatever, whatever indicator um, such a small percentage of influencers actually do that. And so I think that like, if the FTC wants to actually change the way that things are done on social media in regards to, you know, pharmaceutical advertising, et cetera, health and wellness advertising, they need to hold TikTok and Meta and all of the platforms accountable. You can't hold individual people accountable for this. I don't think, right? People that are creators or influencers, because at the end of the day, if the platform is allowing them to do it, then like, aren't they culpable too? And then also just from a, you know, I doubt that a majority of influencers in the world have read those guidelines, right? Um, there's an education gap with the industry that, you know, having a management company helps a ton with, working with an agency helps a ton with. But um, just in terms of like herding cats and what's more efficient, I think the more efficient thing to do would be for them to hold um, the platforms responsible for this moderation rather than the creators themselves. That's great. So pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, obviously there's been a shift, especially on, you know, regarding vaccines and, and health coverage. Are you, were you seeing that as well in what you were covering? Oh yeah. I mean, in terms of, um, influencers posting about health content or mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like the biggest thing that I've seen is it's a really great money-making opportunity for creators, right? Um, a pharmaceutical company by definition has more money than a makeup company, you know, in mm -hmm. most cases. Right. 
Um, so yeah, I think I've definitely seen a shift as, you know, especially it has to do with the pay transparency stuff as well. Um, in terms of the amount of content that is being promoted, even with like Botox and stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I am curious to see if there are any like Ozempic influencers out there after that entire article from um, New York magazine recently. I don't think so. Just but like if you go on Google, there's a ton of sponsored ads for doctor's offices or services that can get you Ozempic. Um, so, yeah, it's I feel like I haven't necessarily seen a shift in regulation, but I have seen a shift in the uptick of content and what yeah. these brands or creators are able to promote. Yeah, super interesting. And it's only going to we're only going to see more as, you know, the days and weeks unfold and, and what's going to happen and and everything like that. And that to your point, too, that's why it's so important that influencers are well versed in disclosures and saying it's sponsored content when they work with agencies or their management. It's like, okay, this is the things we need to do. Now that we got through that, let's talk about the content. But it's like, there is a reason that influencers are not well versed in this because often the platforms, you know, there's no moderation. If you don't say hashtag sponsored, nothing's really going to happen to you. The odds are, right? Um, And then, you know, maybe your post is even going to perform better if it's not there because it it doesn't say sponsored and it's more authentic. Um, So it comes back to, I just think the platforms being more responsible and knowing, I I even think that like the platforms and the employees there that are in charge of moderating this stuff need to have a better education program internally on what the rules of their own platforms actually are. Um, I can't tell you how many times I've talked to sources from TikTok who, you know, are confused about an internal policy um, that is moderation um, adjacent. So you wrote an article a few months ago. I think this was when you were still at Marketing Brew about creators kind of revealing what they found most important in a brand partnership, if that rings a bell. Um, So can you kind of tell us a little bit of the insights that you discovered there? I know Getting paid in a timely fashion was definitely at, t- at the top of the list. But what else did they look for in a, in a brand? You know what? I think this might have been an ad age, not Marketing Brew, actually. Um, I believe it was an article with FYPM that was their data. Um, but there's been a lot of articles like that that I've done. Um, yeah, at the, bo- at the end of the day, creators just want to be treated like humans, right? They want to be um, given what they are promised. They want to be paid on time. They want to be treated like, you know, smart and collaborative professionals rather than a marketing channel. Um, so that's just sort of like the big overarching theme of what that data was saying. Um, you know, they want to be paid at the end of the day. Um, yeah, that that is essentially, you know, the mood and what that article had to say. Um, and I think it's what the pay transparency movement has been saying for a while. But something that I've learned in the past year or so of reporting on this is that like, if you think about it, influencer marketing is the first time that there has been a human marketing channel, you know, mm. with TV ads, that's, you know, a technological system that you can plug right. in a formula to, and then it runs your creative and your ad. Um, with billboard ads, same thing. You talk to the people that are putting the creative on the billboard, and then it's a literal piece of paper. and It's just right there. Or, you know, a digital billboard that moves. It's, it's a screen either way. Creators are people, right? Like influencer marketing content does not get there. Um, Like it's a person that is putting it forward. It requires a person. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that that is difficult for a lot of marketers to understand that it's not just another plug and play marketing channel, but, you know, things happen like these people can get sick or get divorced from the spouse that they used to create content with or their pet that used to be an influencer can die. Um, So, yeah, it's it's interesting that way to sort of see that shift. But um, on the creator end, they would very much like to be treated like human beings. 
you're speaking our language there. That mm. human to human interaction is just everything that we're about. And I think that it's so important to remember that because these people are people and yes, they're behind a screen, but they have feelings and emotions and things that happen to your point, death or divorce or whatever it may be. And brands need to be sympathetic to that and understand that maybe the content changes or maybe we need to swap and do something different um, to let this person live their life. So I think that's a really important point. That you made. Yeah, absolutely. There's um, a sign outside of a psychic that I walk by when I take my dog to the dog park and it has like a bulleted list of all the things that the psychic will tell you about. And three things in the list that I always think are just like a funny group. It's like death, divorce, taxes. And I'm like, yeah, you know, things that influencers <laughs> deal with that other marketing channels don't. <laughs> But think about also like you, 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 a print ad in a magazine, you know, Mad Men era or even recently. And it's this static piece, uh, you know, of art or copy and it can't talk back to you. It can't give you feedback. It can't tell you that it likes the cherry flavored uh, pie. You know, I mean, it, it's, it, but this conversation that emerges with, with human centered marketing is so profound on so many levels. For everybody, it gives the consumer voices, they can really talk to the brand and it gives the brand insight in ways that it's never existed before. Yeah, I think the, the feedback piece is really important to a lot of brands um, in terms of like, you know, a lot of direct to consumer brands do influencer seating. And so, you know, with no expectation for the influencer to post, they'll send them free products. And often that influencer, if they're smaller, are trying to build some sort of resume, right, that they can do content for brands. So we'll post anyways. Mm -hmm. Um, or if they just happen to really like it and they like the brand, they'll post it anyways. But a huge important piece of that for those brands is feedback and the fact mm -hmm. about the product itself, right? Or about even like the unboxing experience or the branding or things like that. Um, because it's like you get a free focus group, you know? TikTok versus Instagram. You know, what are you seeing the differentiators are? Are you seeing more authentic content on TikTok or more creativity? Um, can you talk about kind of what you're seeing in the two different platforms from creators or from brands from creators okay. specifically? Um, yeah, I do think, I mean, you know, I'm not going to be, it'd be really fun to have a hot take and say, no, Instagram is more authentic, but like, that's not my take. <laughs> I think what everyone's been saying is right. And that TikTok content is more authentic. Um, I think that's partly because Gen Z as a generation is more authentic. Like the language that some of these younger creators have and are using on TikTok as teenagers um about you know gaslighting and emotional abuse and they just have all of these like psychological terminology um or you know pieces of terminology that are like from a psych textbook that millennials and up did not have um and weren't using at that age and so i think that like they're just a lot more aware of mental health they're a lot more aware of you know stigmas against and biases against different groups um than anybody else was at their age um and so i think that it comes from the app being so gen z based is where a lot of that authenticity comes from because i don't know i feel like i, I follow i'm a millennial i follow a lot of millennial creators on tiktok and it's it's similar to instagram they're revealing more so perhaps you could say that they're more authentic but like their makeup is more likely to be perfectly done. Um, and you know, their, their hair looks nice and they're wearing like a put together outfit than a Gen Z person on TikTok is. And there's more, as far as I know, in terms of like what I've seen, maybe I don't have the most updated data, but I think that there are more Gen Z creators on TikTok than any other generation still. Not by much, but there, there are more. Last time I looked at those numbers, 
Um, so I think that's a big part of it. And I think that, you know, it ha the same thing happened with Facebook, right? Like a millennial, I was on Facebook, then all of our parents got on Facebook and then we moved to Instagram. I think that's what Gen Z has done with TikTok and the authenticity piece is because of what their generation is willing to share on social media. Um, they're willing to share more and they have the language to be more authentic. Do you think that the, um, the, the fees that are paid to TikTokers are going to outrun Instagram fees? To be honest, that is not like, I mean, I really try to talk to a lot of different influencer marketers and, you know, creators, like that's what I do all day. And talking about the creator payouts, the only platform that creators have really identified those as significant to me on is Snapchat. Um, and a significant part of like why they use the platform. I really think that, I mean, again, you guys know better than I do here, but I think that's kind of an added bonus of being a creator there. I don't think it's necessarily, you know, the number one thing that creators are factoring into their heads when they're talking about which platform they want to post on. Um, in terms of who makes more money, Instagram influencers or TikTok creators, um, well, I think that right now you have to be creating video on both platforms, right? So, um, I published data recently that said that Instagram creators still make more money, but um, I think it's it's because there are a lot more Instagram creators than there are TikTok creators still. So that's just like where the and brands are more used to posting on Instagram than they are on TikTok. So it's just what people are comfortable with. I think that'll shift as time goes on. Um, but yeah, I think as far as you know, creators, I feel like do what's more natural to them. If it's more natural for them to be posting on Instagram, they'll do that. Um, if it's more natural for them to be posting on TikTok, they'll do that. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's about authenticity and they're not going to be getting tapped by brands if they are not authentic on either platform. So I think that's where they tend to lean more so than where am I going to make more money? At least the majority of creators. There are many career creators that I'm sure would say that's not the case for them. But yeah. No, I think, I think that's spot on right there. That authenticity shines through and people will see right through it if you're not. So. That makes sense. Um, so I have one other question before we wrap up. And, and Cooper, please feel free to ask anything else to, to finalize. But any influencers that you follow personally that you're watching? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I'm not, you know, I do this so much for, <laughs> um, for my job, but I, I really just try and keep my social media. Here's another weird thing about me. If I did not do this job, if I wasn't a reporter, I would have like a flip phone. Like maybe I would probably just have a landline and a home phone. I picture myself with like an antique rotary phone and only being able to be contacted by that. Um, and like living in a lighthouse on the sea and having bad service there, even from the landline. Um, however, so I tried to keep my social media following, you know, chiller, but I, I follow people who do other content that isn't just branded content, right? Or that can't easily be placed into branded content. So um, Shannon Fiedler, she's a comedian. I think she's really funny. She does some branded content, but like I will likely watch at least half of that branded content because it takes you a while to realize into the video that it's branded. Um, but yeah, you know, she's a comedian. She's making funny videos that have nothing to do with brands. Um, I'm trying to think who else I follow. I really like her. Um, I love, I'm a big Bachelor fan um, and Bachelorette and Bachelor in Paradise. So I follow all those people when they come off the show. There's a woman named McKenna Dorn who was on um, a couple seasons ago. She's Canada based. I think she's wonderful and is full of light and very authentic. Um, you know, she's very much a career influencer and creator, but I like following her enough that, you know, I don't mind the sponsored stuff. Um, so yeah, people, people like that. Have you bought a recent purchase 
based on an influencer recently? I don't think so. Um, but it's again, like how, how could I, you know? Um, like I know exactly what's happening there. Um, I bought, I purchased things based on Instagram ads recently though. Do you guys know Keens? Um, it's like Q U or Kints, Q U I N C E. Um, they've just been doing like a blitz of Instagram ads recently and eventually I clicked on it. They're famous for their $50 cashmere sweater. So that's like what a bunch of people in my life got for Christmas this year. Um, but yeah, it wasn't necessarily an influencer. I'll let you guys know though, if I, if I convert. <laughs> well, it's so cool how your, your career and what you've, what you're doing is kind of the through line through all of this and that you've been covering it and paying attention to it and researching it and writing about it since really it started to take off. Thanks. Yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, I think at like the core, the reason that I've, you know, doubled down on this as a coverage area is because originally when I graduated college, I wanted to go work at Cosmopolitan and be a sex and relationships reporter. Um, and that's a female based publication. And so I think I've always followed what women are doing and found that interesting and had that be, you know, what I think about and what I write about and what I talk about. Um, and so I think this was if I'm going to fall into writing about the marketing industry, this was kind of the natural place where I would end up. Right. Um, so I think, I think that's probably why I've ended up, you know, focusing on it so heavily. Okay. Predictions. What do you think is going to happen to the industry? I am not the person to ask. You guys should read my stories from Ad Age and listen to what all of my sources are saying is going to happen to the industry. Um, you know, it's my job to talk to the people that are on the ground and kind of synthesize what they're saying. And those are the people that know what they're talking about for predictions, not me. Anytime I've ever made a prediction, it's been wrong. So, But did you, in 2017, did you have a sense that this was going to take off? Yeah. Um, yeah. But relative to who, you know what I mean? I yeah. had a sense more than somebody who had been in the industry for 40 years. Um, right. and like, I think I had more of an outside perspective at that point, but I don't now. Um, mm. so I think, but I think anybody that was like in their twenties or thirties then could have mm -hmm. known that, you know, Phoebe, thank you so much for taking the time out today for talking to us about your history, about your knowledge of the industry. And we're excited to see what's going to happen next. So thank you so much. Same here. Thank you. Have a thank great day. Thank you, Phoebe. Thank you. <laughs>